Russia would like to sort of extricate itself from having to use the Ukrainian transit system uh, more more generally, more broadly. And so th there's no doubt that there's an element of political comfort and a desire to not have to depend on Ukraine for transiting gas to, to Europe. Welcome to the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs, a completely student-run podcast at Johns Hopkins University. My name is Lauren Zhao, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Chris Park. We explore the state of energy security in Europe today and Ukraine and Russia's important role in the energy market. How have gas supply policies affected the recent conflict between Russia and Ukraine? How likely is a Russian shutoff of Ukrainian energy? And what does the future of energy security in Europe look like? To answer these questions and more, we are joined by Mr. Nico Safos. Nico Safos is the James R. Schlesinger Chair in Energy and Geopolitics with the Energy Security and Climate Change Program at CSIS. He has written extensively on the geopolitics of energy and natural gas, the political economy of hydrocarbon states, European energy policy, sustainable cities and mobility, the pace and trajectory of the energy transition, and the geopolitics of energy in the Arctic, Europe, and the Eastern Mediterranean and Southeast Asia. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Hopkins Podcast on Foreign Affairs. Hi, Nikos. It's really nice to um, meet you, and it's nice to have you on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so we wanted to begin the podcast by exploring the state of European energy security today. And I wanted to ask you, where does Europe's energy supply primarily come from, and who are the major actors? Yeah, well, I, the first thing to really understand in answering that question is, you know, it really depends on what commodity and fuel we're looking at. But broadly speaking, the Europeans themselves report their import dependency at about 60%. So 60% of the energy that the European Union consumes comes from outside the European Union. Um, that number is much higher for oil and gas. So in oil, it is above 95%. In gas, it's about 90%, and it's a little bit less for, for coal. So this has been a fact of life for a long time for the European Union, that it depends on imported energy. Uh, the number has gone up a little bit, but not a lot over the years, again, depending on the fuel. And whether you're talking oil or gas or even coal, the number one supplier is always Russia. Uh, their market share differs depending on what commodity we're talking about. Natural gas, where a lot of the focus these days is on, Russia supplies about 40% of uh, the EU's imports. And you know the other players depend very much on the market in terms of gas. It's North Africa, the Middle East, and, and Norway. Uh, in terms of, of oil, it's you know the Middle East and Africa. Uh, also, a little bit of the United States. In terms of coal, it's it's different parts. So, the broad reality of life is that for Europe to meet its energy needs, it requires imports. And no matter what product we're looking at those imports, to a great extent, come from Russia. So for these energy imports, how does it really get to Europe? And in what forms does it get to Europe? Yeah, so the, the, the European sort of gas system, which is the one that's least, uh, it's stickier, it's uh, least flexible, because uh, oil, you know, you can always put oil on a, on a boat, you can put oil on a truck, you know, you can, you can move oil around much more easily, coal the same. So the logistics and the 
geography of supply is less acute of a problem for oil and for coal because it's much easier to move. For gas, which can be moved either via pipeline or in liquefied form where you take the gas, you, you chill it. Um, and when you chill it, it shrinks by a factor of 600 in terms of its volume, which makes it economic to put in a, on a ship, so liquefied natural gas. So Europe has a number of pipeline connections uh, for, um, uh, for, for importing natural gas. Um, it has about four or five corridors in terms of its relationship with Russia. Uh, it has a corridor north, sort of coming from uh, Norway. It has, uh, you know, three or four pipelines from North Africa, and then all along the coast of Europe. In most countries, there are import terminals that basically take this really cold gas and they turn it into gas that can be used and put in a pipeline. They were called regasification facilities. So that is the sort of the broad infrastructure of the different ways in which gas gets consumed uh, in the European Union. So I guess looking at the broader picture, how has Europe's energy security fared in recent years? And have certain EU member states faced more dire situations than others? Yeah, so I think it's helpful to understand that in the in the European context, energy security for the most part, not exclusively, but for the most part means gas security. You know, and that's different than, say, the United States, which for a very long time has thought about energy security as primarily about oil security, right? Dependence on the Middle East and that kind of stuff. In Europe, energy security really means gas security. And what really has uh, shaped the European thinking on energy security have been a couple of crises that happened in the late 2000s, 2006, 2009, where a number of disputes between Russia and Ukraine led to an interruption of gas supplies coming from Russia through Ukraine into the European market. And so that those instances have sort of shaped the sense of vulnerability and have shaped sort of the policy response that Europe has try to put in place to cope with interruptions of this kind. The reality is that the parts of Europe, sort of Central and Eastern Europe that are closest to Russia, face a more acute challenge than countries that are further away, and especially countries that are on the water. So, you know, if you go south, by the time you get to Greece or Turkey or Italy, you know, yes, there is Russian gas that goes there, but all these countries have also the ability to access liquefied natural gas. If you go north, you know, by the time you get to, you know, Belgium, Netherlands, France, um, again, all these countries have alternative supplies for as LNG. Uh, and so historically, a lot of the energy security focus has been not so much on the overall dependence on Russian gas, although that's important, but on the variation of that dependence, and especially the sense that as you get closer to Russia, that dependence gets higher, and the alternatives that countries have are fewer. And so a lot of the energy security policy agenda in Europe has been not purely or not exclusively about relieving overall dependence on Russian gas, sort of the overall number that I quoted before of how much of your gas comes from Russia, but on making sure that the places that are most vulnerable to an interruption of Russian gas supply could cope with such an interruption. And so that's really meant the Baltics. It's meant sort of Poland and parts of you know Central and Eastern Europe, including Ukraine. 
and it's also been uh, sort of the Balkans, uh, particularly Bulgaria, um, that sits uh, kind of like in the in the middle of of a, of a corridor that used to transport gas uh, through Ukraine down south. So the conversation has been not just Europe-wide, but really focus on these pockets of vulnerability and try to help those countries cope with a possible disruption. Yeah. So on that topic of, I guess, European um, gas supply policy agenda, one contentious issue has been the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. Could you briefly explain what it is and how it really affects European energy security? Yeah. So Nord Stream 2 as a pipeline is, uh, the reason it has a two there is because there's an existing Nord Stream pipeline. Uh, The Nord Stream pipeline uh, came online in late 2011 to bring gas from Russia to Germany directly. Uh, In the past, the gas that went to Germany went through third countries, primarily Ukraine and and Belarus. Um, And so the way to think about Nord Stream 2 in the geography of European gas is if you go back to the 1990s, you know, most of the gas that Russia sold to Europe went through Ukraine, 80%, above 80%, depending on what year you're looking at. And over the years, Russia has, for commercial and also political reasons, tried to diversify the routes through which it sends gas to Europe. Uh, it has done this over a span of two plus decades. Uh, and so if you look at the amount of gas that is transited through Ukraine, you know that has declined by about 70% from the late 1990s to the present. And so what Nord Stream 2 does is it basically takes that broad arc of a 25-year diversification away from Ukraine from the Russian perspective. And it is sort of the, the final nail in the coffin, right? It is the final pipeline that would allow Russia to basically ship all the gas that it wants to Europe without having to use the corridor of Ukraine as a transit mechanism. And so that in itself raises questions about Ukraine energy security and the fact that Ukraine makes money transiting the gas. Um, And so that is sort of one area of overarching concern. The second area, which I personally find less persuasive, has to do with you know Nord Stream two as a proxy for Russian dependence overall, right? You know, should, will it allow Russia to export more gas to Europe? Will it give Russia more market power? Does it make Europe more dependent on Russian gas? I, I, you know, I happen to find a lot of these conversations to be a little bit less grounded in in truth. Um, I feel like it's a little bit harder to make very clear instances. Um, the fact that we are in an, a gas crisis in Europe at the moment is, is proof enough that the Russians have market power, even if they don't have Nord Stream 2. But a lot of that focus has been around the implications of Nord Stream 2, first for European energy security and second for Ukrainian energy security. We wanted to explore uh, the idea of Ukrainian energy security a bit before we dive um, really into European uh, energy security uh, in the continent. So you've said Russia has, over time in the past uh, two decades, um, worked to diversify the channels through which it's sending gas to Europe. I'm wondering why did this diversification happen? Is it just a nature of ensuring that there will be multiple channels in case the pipelines through Ukraine fails? Or are there um, other reasons that Russia pursued this policy? Yeah, I think it's a mix of both, right? Um, there's definitely a, you know, if, if you strip away all the geopolitics and all the history, 
you know, having multiple routes through which you get to your customer is not a bad idea, right? And so the Russians saw the opportunity to supply the Turkish market. And so they could either have sent more gas to Ukraine or they build a pipeline directly to Turkey, right? The same thing with, with Germany, with the original Nord Stream pipeline. So there is a reasonable, I think, business case to say that we shouldn't have 80% of our commodity go through one single route to our market. I think you could argue that this was very much the mindset in the sort of late 1990s, early 2000s. I think after the 2006 and 2009 crises, you've just had an additional impetus to say that this relationship is acrimonious, it's conflictual, and Russia would like to sort of extricate itself from having to use the Ukrainian transit system uh, more more generally, more broadly. And so th there's no doubt that there's an element of political comfort and a desire to not have to depend on Ukraine for transiting gas to, to Europe. I think there's a further argument that some folks make. I don't subscribe to that argument, but I think it's important to articulate it, which is that, you know, sort of Russia sees that uh, diversification of routes as a way of weakening Ukraine, right? Of sort of stripping it of its strategic role in the European energy system and therefore like isolating Ukraine or making it less, less important. Um, I, I, don't, I don't find that uh, argument particularly persuasive in part because I feel like it's uh, it it used it's used alongside other arguments that are contradictory. So sometimes you'll hear arguments that basically imply that you know Russia wants to take over Ukraine because of its strategic role. But then if you say, okay, well let's make Ukraine less strategic, they'll say, well, well that's when Russia will finally invade once it stops being strategic, right? It's like, okay, are they invading because it's strategic, or are they invading and being or want to invade but they're being held back because of its strategic role, but would finally invade if it's no longer strategic? Like you, you know, and oftentimes people make both arguments, and and uh, for someone who likes some intellectual consistency, that's that's a that's a problem. So, you know, I, I think there are questions about how far you make that argument and, and how far you move away from the sort of reasonable commercial rationales to sort of risk management to politics. All the way there, I think I'm comfortable when people start talking about this as a form of essentially like economic warfare. I think the evidence for that becomes a little bit thinner. You've said, you know, like you said, Russian gas being piped through Ukraine has you know gone down um, in the past two decades. How important is um, being in this energy transit business been for the Ukrainian economy, and how uh, what how much of a critical role does it play today? Yeah, so if you look today, less than a quarter of the Russian gas to Europe goes through Ukraine, right? So I said before it used to be over eighty percent. Now it's less than a quarter. Right, so Ukraine's sort of footprint and, and centrality in the European system has has declined. Um, you know, with that decline has also come uh, sort of less revenue. You know, you you make more money uh, shipping. You know, eighty percent of the commodity than than twenty something percent of the commodity. Like so, volumetrically, it's gone down. Um, and I think the 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 issue what gets a little bit trickier is, you know, what is the political significance of all that? Right, so. A lot of what the Ukrainians worry about is that they've always kind of felt that their transit role sort of ties them with Europe, and so you can't really hit Ukraine without hitting Europe. And the Ukrainians have always thought of that as a sort of shield that they that they can deploy. 
even though it didn't really help them in 2006 and 2009, where Ukraine and Europe were both hit at the same time. Um, but the Ukrainians have always thought of that transit role as sort of playing a key element uh, of their energy security strategy. It's clearly, their transit role is clearly important for them to access the gas themselves, because even though they don't buy gas directly from Russia, they rely on the transit to use some of the, the gas that transits their, their country. I think the, the 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 question more broadly of, you know, what is, you know, Ukrainian energy security look like without this transit role, I think it's a it's a tough one to figure out, and you have to sort of understand how to provide energy security in Ukraine, um, if that transit role sort of disappears, which, with the completion or operation of Nord Stream two, would get very close to not really having to ship almost any gas through. Uh, through Ukraine. Yeah, so something that is probably on everyone's minds right now is the mounting fears that you've mentioned of Russia invading Ukraine in the near future. How has European energy security really played a role? And how have different European leaders responded to these new developments? Yeah, so I think there's, you know, before we get to the moment of thinking about a crisis in Ukraine or around Ukraine, you know, I think it's important to establish some basic facts of the backdrop, which is that since last summer, so July, June, July, 2021, European prices for gas have been incredibly high, like super high, historically high. And so um, a lot of this has been because the amount of gas in storage, which Europe relies on to make it to the winter has not been very high. So there's been a lot of fears that we may not be able to make it through the winter. So I say all this because even before you talk about a crisis in Ukraine, you have to begin from the recognition that the European gas market is incredibly tight. It's incredibly agitated. And so you're starting from a baseline of some of the highest prices that we've ever seen in any commodity market. right? So. That, I think, has created sort of a sense of insecurity and vulnerability and awareness. Um, I think how you take that further into talking about the politics and the crisis, I think we have to be a little bit careful for that. Um, and here's what I mean. I think there's an argument, especially you hear that in Washington, where I live, that says, well, Europe would behave a certain way towards Russia or would like to behave a certain way towards Russia, but it doesn't because it's dependent on its gas, on Russian gas. And so in that reading, you would say, oh, if you depended less on Russian gas, you would be more, more willing to do sanctions or to push back against Russia. That's an argument that I think Washington believes in very strongly. I don't think it's an argument that has a terrible amount of substantiation in the data. I think if you look at the foreign policy posture of different countries, you know how they behave towards Russia is not a function of how much gas they import from Russia. Right. I would argue, in fact, it's the opposite of how much gas they import from Russia is a function of how they think about Russia and how they behave towards Russia. Right. So I think there is sometimes an expectation that like, oh, this crisis is happening and Europe can't respond because it's too scared of Russia cutting off the gas. I don't think that's a very sort of accurate articulation of um, of how European foreign policy is structured. Um, that also means that, you know, like the question of dependence, you know, if you think about a crisis that may happen in the next, you know, day, week, month, you know, there's only so much you can do to cope with an incident of that type. You know, the, you, diversification, alternatives, all these things take time, right? And so it's not something that you can do overnight. 
um, the things that you can do overnight are much more limited. And so how you manage with a shock for a few days or weeks or months is a very different conversation that how do you think about not putting yourself in this position again in five, 10, 15 years, right? So, uh, so that's been, the conversation I think has been much more on how do we manage a disruption if it comes and how do we cope with very high prices? Uh, and if you think more strategically about like, well, what does this all mean? The European response, again, whether you agree with it or not, the European general response is to say, this is because we rely on hydrocarbons and we have to stop relying on hydrocarbons and this is how we're going to get out of this. Rather than we need to use gas and we need to find new sources of gas, right? The general strategic thrust is this is a crisis of hydrocarbons. We need to have an energy transition that is fast, that is safe, that is fair, that is stable. And that's how we're going to get our, uh, ourselves out of a similar predicament in the future. So that's very much sort of the, the political conversation that you're seeing in Europe right now. I guess then looking at the Russian side of the equation, the United States and many Western governments have threatened the Kremlin with heavy san sanctions if Russia does invade Ukraine. Um, and there are concerns that Russia may cut off its gas supplies completely to Europe in retaliation. How likely would this situation rise, a complete Russian shutoff of gas? I don't think it's very likely. Uh, the reason I don't think it's very likely is because it requires either the Europeans to say, we don't want your gas, or the Russians to say, we're not going to sell you the gas. Unlike, say, a disruption to Ukraine, which could happen sort of in the heat of the conflict, right? So, so you have to ask yourself, why would either side do this, right? And to me, it seems that from the Russian perspective, you know, shutting off gas to Germany and to Turkey and to Italy is the fastest way to unite the European Union against you, right? And to basically alienate whoever you haven't alienated yet when it comes to this crisis. And so it is a massive escalation, right? I mean, I my sense is that if we are experiencing a total cutoff of gas supplies from Russia to Europe, we've probably already started World War III. So the lack of gas is the least of our worries, right? I mean, we're talking about an incredible escalation in the conflict uh, between the two sides. So I don't think it's particularly likely. It would be devastating. There's no kind of like short-term ability to offset these volumes you would be in crisis mode, you would have rationing, you would be trying to burn whatever else you can burn. So I don't think it's very likely, or sorry, I don't think it's something that Europe can deal with. Um, but I also thankfully don't think it's very likely as a scenario. Mm -hmm. But you mentioned that, you know, like some analysts have been saying, that Russia could carry out a more limited gas supply cutoff through withholding gas sent through pipelines crossing Ukraine. And I know we've discussed this before that, you know, the amount of gas being sent through that ex uh, channel is has been historically um, or less than what it's historically been. But I'm wondering what consequences will even this limited shutoff, ha uh, shutoff have on Europe? Yeah, so you, you start as we've said, from the recognition that the centrality of, the, of Ukraine and the European energy system is much different today than it was in the earlier crisis. And a cutoff of gas to Ukraine, I think, is a much more likely scenario in the event of a conflict, right? It could happen either from the Russian side or the Ukrainian side. 
you could blame the other side. You know, th there's lots of different ways in which you can imagine flows being disrupted. And so at that point, you're asking yourself, well, who today relies on Ukrainian transit uh, as the share of Russian gas going through Ukraine has diminished? And so today, downstream of Ukraine is Italy, Austria, Slovakia, and of course, Ukraine itself. Those are the countries that essentially today depend on the gas that comes through Ukraine, and those would be the countries that are affected by a cutoff. And so the question then becomes, well, what are the alternatives that these countries have? Italy, probably best supplied, lots of pipelines, also access to the sea. Austria, a little bit less able to access alternative Slovakia. Uh, also has some interconnectivity, but it would feel the pinch. Uh, Ukraine itself would really suffer in the sense that Ukraine, you know, the gas that it transits, it sort of ships back uh, to itself for consumption. And so Ukraine would suffer too. But, you know, the way we have to think about it is it's a much smaller sort of corridor of impact than it was in earlier crises. The final thing that is really important for everyone to understand is timing also matters. Europe uses a lot of gas during the winter for space heating, and the consumption declines significantly as you go into the summer. And so a crisis in February is different than a crisis in May. Uh, a crisis in May, you could probably withstand quite easily. A crisis in February is already less severe than a crisis would have been in December or January. So the timing matters tremendously in terms of thinking of the downstream impacts and who's affected and who can deal with it. Mm -hmm. You mentioned that you know Ukraine also you know receives uh, kind of ships back gas that it's um, that's it's coming through the pipelines going uh, under the country. Will a limited shutoff like we discussed? detrimentally impact Ukraine and its ability to fight Russia? Or do you believe Ukraine will have other sources of energy and on top of the timing constraints um, and be able to not be impacted so uh, badly by a limited shutoff? If the shutoff happens during the wintertime, Ukraine would have a lot of trouble. There's no doubt about that, right? It, it, it needs this gas. It has some gas in storage, so we'll be able to pull some from there. Uh, but you would most certainly have to resort to some measures of rationing and and uh, and trying to resort to alternative fuels to be able to make it through through the winter time. So uh, th there's no way for me to think that a cutoff of this transit gas that Ukraine relies on for its own consumption would be painless for for Ukraine. Absolutely not. It would be it would be painful. Having said that, every day that passes and we get closer to the spring. And depending on what the weather looks like, that shapes very much the threat, right? So if you have a cold February and you lose the transit gas, you know, that's painful. If you have a warm February and a warm March, you know, you may actually still be able to make do with domestic production and and with uh, with what you have in storage. Plus, there is some ability to ship gas into Ukraine from uh, Slovakia in particular. So, you know, it's not a totally dire situation. Uh, but it will absolutely be painful. Now, you know, whether it affects the Ukraine ability to fight back, you know, I wouldn't profess to claim to be a military strategist about how much that will matter, right? But in terms of an impact on, you know, consumers in Ukraine, it will absolutely be felt. And depending on when it happens and what the weather looks like, it could be a very severe or a relatively mild impact.
one topic that you know perhaps a little contentiously was discussed um, when uh, Chancellor um, Olaf Scholz visited the White House, um, I believe yesterday. Um, by the time that this podcast is, or at the time of this recording, um, is the Nord Stream two pipeline and uh, what it, what will happen to the on uh, the project if Russia does invade? What do you believe would happen to Nord Stream two if an invasion does take place? The United States has been trying to stop Nord Stream 2 for a while now, um, and it's always stopped short from the most severe measures to stop the pipeline because those most severe measures would really have to hit European companies and particularly uh, German sort of companies and actors uh, to really sort of shut off the, the pipeline completely. Uh, or to prevent it completely from operating. And so the Germans have never sort of embraced this approach. They've never wanted to stop the pipeline. The pipeline is also controversial in Germany. Different parties have different views on the pipeline. And so this has always been a source of contention between the United States and Germany. I think where the Germans find themselves today is they would like to communicate to Russia that there's a price that will be paid in case of an invasion. And while the Germans refuse to sort of specifically name Nord Stream 2 as the target, they will say things like, nothing is off the table, we will consider everything, we will do whatever is proportionate with the response. And so I think what you're seeing is a sort of split between the US view, which is very, very much targeting Nord Stream 2 as a no-brainer, with a German view that says, that's not really where our first instinct is, but we also don't want to take it off the table because who knows what Russia does. So if you do have an invasion, I think it will very much depend on what the shape is, what what, what kind of invasion you're talking about, how long it lasts. Uh, but if it's something that is major, I think there's going to be a lot of pressure on Germany to try to, to hit sort of Nord Stream 2 in retaliation. Um, I, I don't think that's where the Germans want to be. But if they feel very provoked by Russia, they may may resort uh, to that. It's it gets a little bit tricky about how you do it and and the legal mechanisms. But I think it's possible that you may find yourself there in case of a major major conflict. Yeah. So you talked a little bit about um, fast action. How are European governments and the United States preparing for potential disruption of Russian energy supplies to Europe? And do you, if like, do you think these me measures would be effective or and feasible in a short time lapse? So the main thing that's been happening is Europe is importing a lot more liquefied natural gas. In fact, in January, even before there is a conflict and a disruption from Russia, uh, LNG imports into Europe were at an all-time high. Um, and by the way, almost half of those imports came from the United States. And so the European system actually, because of this crisis, is already in trying to pull gas from everywhere we can kind of mode. So what the Europeans are doing is trying to figure out, okay, if we have a more serious disruption, can we access the gas that we need? A lot of this takes place at the in the marketplace, you know, companies trying to buy gas. And so the government is trying to think more about what are the ways on top of that market mechanism that we could facilitate, lubricate, assist, um, you know, talk diplomatically, try to alleviate any bottlenecks. So the focus is very much on that front. But the system itself has already sort of adjusted. It's already supplying Europe. So the question is, where can you find additional supplies of gas in the world that could be channeled to Europe? 
there are different places where you can find small volumes. The biggest source of new big volumes for Europe would be Qatar. Uh, Qatar is still sending most of its liquefied natural gas to Asia, 80%. Uh, sending more of that gas to Europe would be sort of one of the major adjustment systems for Europe in the event of a crisis. So again, if we're talking about purely a disruption of flows through Ukraine rather than a wholesale cutoff, you can, by accessing additional liquefied natural gas, sort of make do. Um, if you're talking about a more sort of wholesale disruption, you know, at that point, like there's no way to find enough gas supply anywhere in the world to offset that. So far, we've talked a lot about the variations of dependence of European countries on Russian energy. So the question is, what are some needed reforms European countries can carry out to stabilize its energy source? I would say that in terms of more short and medium term solutions, I think you have two different types of uh, strategic focus areas, right? One is the question of dependence on Russia. And I would say that this is not actually like a huge focus for the Europeans, the dependence on Russia per se. Uh, the Europeans have thought a lot more about resilience and redundancy and being able to sort of cope with an interruption of Russian supplies rather than sort of diversification per se in terms of where they want to go. They, the, the Europeans feel like they have done as much as they could to diversify, and they have, in fact, diversified quite quite a bit. Um, so I, I don't see that there will be huge efforts to sort of try to go and you know sign up for new contracts to bring gas into Europe and that kind of that, that kind of uh, policy agenda. I think what really this crisis has exposed, because again, the tensions in Ukraine have salience even more because Europe finds itself in a pre-existing crisis, right? If price had not been that high, if the market was not so tight, Europe would not feel so insecure. I think what this crisis shows is, is the challenge of really seasonal balancing, that Europe needs gas in the winter. Uh, the consumption of the winter goes up a lot relative to the summer historically was able to produce more gas in the winter. Now it doesn't produce as much gas anymore. It depends on imports. And so I think part of the challenge is how do you make sure that to, to you meet the seasonal demand for gas during an energy transition? Um, and that is where I hope some of the conversation goes, not purely on the Russian side, although there are things you can do in Russia just to build the resilience of the system, but crucially what these past seven months have exposed is the challenge of seasonal balancing and how do you ensure sufficient gas is stored in the summertime to make it to the winter? How do you reduce demand in the winter through efficiency or you know, switching towards heat pumps and other measures? Those are the things that I suspect will come more and become more part of the agenda going forward, as opposed to a very simple you know, we need to go get gas from somewhere else rather than Russia. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. I had a um, very ins insightful conversation. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of the Hopkins podcast on foreign affairs. We hope you enjoyed it. We would like to say thank you to the International Studies Program at Johns Hopkins University and the SNF Agora Institute at Johns Hopkins University for making this episode possible. Remember to follow us on social media at Hopkins POFA on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook for the latest and greatest of Hopkins POFA content. Hit follow on Spotify, subscribe on iTunes, and leave a rating. We'll see you next time.